and I, even a year ago in August, and we, as we were having dinner, I was talking to him about this psalm and just how exciting this psalm was. And so in some ways, this psalm has been in my heart and I've been thinking about it for over a year. And, um, and so I'm just really excited to share. And I hope that as I share, some of my passion for the scriptures and this word can be presented to you guys and you get excited and we can see Christ as just being our king as we, as we were singing today, as he's exalted, he's our king. I think this psalm is very powerful and uh, very exciting. Um, so hopefully we can see that today. Um, we all love a good story, right? How many of you, I'm not sure, not show of hands, was in that cockpit with Tom Cruise a few weeks ago, and you could feel those G's, and you could feel the turns as he was going around those things. Like that movie, like I felt like I was a pilot, and I was like, I want to be a pilot, right? And we all felt that. And as a child, I loved good stories. I loved to read. I loved the good movies, action, adventure. And I loved to put myself in a story. I like to be the hero, the guy who's going to save the day. And every night when I was a child, I would, did this for years, I would pretend, I would set up a story, a scenario in my mind. And as I would fall asleep, I would be trying to save the day or do some sort of heroic action. And I always tried to like complete the task before I fell asleep. And that was kind of how I would fall asleep every night. And uh, in fifth grade, um, they had an assignment that we had to write a short story. And I'm from Georgia, and I had just uh, been to the World Series with my grandfather. We saw, I was there when they won uh, the World Series in 1995. And a short time later, we had to write the story. So I'm like, okay, I gotta set a story in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. So the story was gonna be that this terrorist set up a bomb in the stadium, and they called Hunter, the hero, to come find the bomb, you know, defuse the bomb, and find the bad guys, and you know, kill them and defeat them and save the day. So that was my story, and I wrote it all down. I was so proud of it. I turned it in, and I couldn't wait to get back and hear what the teacher had to say. She brought it back, and I got a D. <laughs> she said you got, quote, too caught up in the action. And so anyway, I still think it was a great story, but apparently that was the end of my, you know, writing career as far as uh, a novelist. So hopefully today we don't get too caught up in, this, in the action, but we can actually see what God has for us today. Um, so the Bible is a story, and it's a story of God's redemption. It's God's plan that's being spelled out throughout Scripture. And I think when we look at the Scripture, it's like the same story told over and over and over again. And each time God tells a story, he adds a little bit to it, and he reveals more information. He tells us more. Uh, but the story is a story that as you, when you're looking for the story and when you're reading the Scriptures and you look for it, you see it. And when you see it, it gets exciting because you're like, oh, God's showing me something here. He's showing the same something here. And I think, too, when we start to see the story and we start putting ourselves in the story, it gets even more exciting. So I think when we read the story, we shouldn't see this, the Bible as some distant book that's, you know, nice for church on Sundays and maybe I'll read it a little bit during the week. But this is a story. This is God's story, but it's our story. It's God's telling our history. And it's something that we should put ourselves into. We should imagine ourselves in the pages of Scripture. So I kind of want to do that a little bit today. And as we see God's story, we also see that this is the story God's writing for us. And with everything, uh, everything starts in Genesis. And so the story begins that God wants to tell us in Genesis 1. And what does God say in Genesis 1? It says, let them have dominion. What does God want for us? He says, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it. And what does he want us to have dominion? So from the beginning, God wants man to rule. He wants God you want, God wants man to be in charge. But there's one caveat, right? Are we in charge by ourselves or are we in charge under God? And it's very clear that God said he's ultimately in charge. So when God told Adam, how did God show Adam that he was in charge? He said, I want you to name the animals. And so when Adam was naming the animals, 
he was having dominion over the animals. Whoever's naming something, gets to, they're in charge of that thing. So God, when God made Adam, he named Adam. So God was in charge of Adam. And God set up one rule. He said, you can rule, but you have one rule that you have to follow me. You can't eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. But what did Adam do? He said, no, I want to be the ultimate ruler. I don't want someone else to tell me what to do. I don't want someone else in charge. I'm going to seize that fruit. I'm going to take that fruit that God told me not to. I'm going to seize it so I can be in charge. And so here from the beginning, we see that man, God says, man, I want you to have dominion. But man says, no, I want to have dominion on my own. And that's the story that starts to tell. And because of that, because man chose to lead, to rule apart from God, that's when we, were, we fell. That's when we were cast out of the garden and, and away from God's presence. But God has a story to tell. The story is told in Genesis 3.15 that he's going to tell over and over and over again. How does God restore man to his rightful place of rule underneath God's authority, underneath God and submission to God? This is God actually speaking to the serpent himself. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So here we see the story laid out. It's a drama already from the beginning. There's going to be two sides. There's going to be the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent is people, God, man's in charge, Satan's in charge. We're going to do our own thing. We're not going to submit ourselves to God. And we have the seed of the woman, people who are trying to faithfully submit to God and God's word. But guess what? This is going to be a fight. It's going to be a fight from the beginning until the end. What's going to happen? This serpent's going to be striking this, the woman's seed, striking the seal all the time. It's going to be a fight. It's going to be nonstop. But guess what? There's an ultimate promise that one day the king will come. The king will crush Satan's head. So that's a story that's being told. And this is a story that we see over and over in scripture. Um, a couple examples, just quickly. In the Exodus, here's the people of Israel. They're being tormented. They're being beaten with whips. They're being uh, put into slavery. But what does God do? God comes with it, through his servant Moses, and he destroys, he crushes Pharaoh. He crushes the entire army. Egypt is destroyed. So here's God showing, hey, guess what? They're, they're striking you, they're striking you, but I'm going to crush them. Judges is a story told over and over and over again. You see Gideon, he's afraid. He's in the wine press hiding. He's afraid because they're attacking him. They're inflicting all these wounds on, on him and his country. But what does God do? He works a great, mighty victory, and he crushes Midian. I love Samson. Samson's the same way. You know, he's a, a, re, a reluctant hero in some ways, but he was being harassed by everyone. And, and Israel didn't really follow Samson. I think there's times when, you know, when Samson removed the gates from the city, if Israel was ready, they could have walked in those, those gates and taken over, but they weren't. They, even his own people were not following Samson. But how did Samson end his life? He crushed the heads of five Philistine kings. So here's God showing that we're getting harassed, but ultimately the heads of those who follow Satan will be destroyed. They will be crushed. And so I think we see these people of God, they see themselves in the this, in this story. They see that they will, are being harassed. They are being fought against, but ultimately they do see that God's in control. And I want to see that as David wrote this psalm, and so too David, I think, saw himself in this psalm as well. So let's remind ourselves, what is Psalm 2 about? Psalm 2 is about the anointed of God being attacked. While all along, God is in control. He defeats his enemies and declares his anointed one to be his son, who will be established king over all the earth. So let's think a few things about David. First, David was constantly harassed. His whole life, there was never a dull moment. From Goliath, Saul, the Philistines, the Israelites who didn't initially anoint him to be king, his own children, he had constant conflict. But he was also given very great battles and very great victories in these battles. Um, he was also, he was God's anointed. He was anointed actually three times. Samuel anointed him. Then eventually the, the nation of Judah, they anointed him. 
And it wasn't seven years later that finally the rest of Israel decided to anoint him as king as well. So he's definitely God's anointed one. And he was also, he was called God's son. Uh, 2 Samuel 7 says, when your days are over, this is a promise that the prophet Nathaniel spoke to, to David. David wanted to build the temple, but God appeared to Nathaniel the prophet in a dream and said, hey, tell David to hold your horses. I'm going to have his son be the one who builds the temple, but give him these, this promise in the meantime. He says, I will raise up your offspring to, to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So here we see that David's son will be called literally God's son. But what about David himself? Well, Psalm 89 says, this is David saying, you are my father, my God, the rock, my savior. And here's God to David. And I will appoint him, David, to be my firstborn, the most exalted, the king of the earth. So here we see David as anointed. We see David as, he's God's son. God said, you are my son. And so, what happened after this, 2 Samuel 8, it lists six nations that comes against David. Six different nations are listed in 2 Samuel 8. So as soon as 2 Samuel 7, all these great promises are given to David. You're going to be my son. I'm going to be your father. All these great, you're going to have a kingdom that's going to last forever. The very next chapter, there are six different kingdoms coming up against David. Like, what's going on? So some people think that Psalm 2 is maybe written in this context. So let's think about this through David. What, let's see if David writing himself into God's story actually under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing this, this, this chapter. So after all this happened, he's like, God, why? Why are the nations coming against me? I think he actually, he's asking God, why, why is this happening? You're giving me all these promises. Why are all these things, nations conspiring and coming up against me? But then I think God reminds him, he says, you know what, Dave, David, I told you this was going to happen. This is my story. You're going to be harassed. You're going to be fought against. There's going to be lots of persecution. But guess what? Don't worry about it. I'm in charge. I'm in control. You are my son. I've anointed you. I have set you up on, on Zion, my holy mountain. And your throne will be established. And I think what's neat about the scripture is that we have to see the scripture as partial fulfillments and later fulfillments, as, as, as an unfolding. So a lot, we have to see scripture on more, more than one level. When God says something, it's often for those people that time, but there's a future promise built in. And even for us, as we read scripture, we need to see scripture for us and then for the future as well. So we've got to see the scripture as very multi-layered. And as we see, it says, so as David's continuing to write the psalm, I think as the, the Holy Spirit just took him to the next level. And he said, and, and the nations, you will inherit the nations, and the whole earth will follow the son, the king. And I think David, I'm sure he thought, well, that's not me. I'm not ruling the whole earth. And the people of Israel, Solomon, he quickly fell away from God. So he knew that there's this, this future fulfillment, this future thing that they were looking forward to, this one who would come to crush the nations. And so we see now as David is writing himself in the story. Next, I want to kind of see how did the people in Jesus' time, they were reading the Psalms. They knew the Psalms very well. How did they read the Psalm? And I think part of this is also a warning as well. So when Jesus came on the scene, what did John the Baptist call him? It says, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain on is the one who will baptize the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. This Son of God reference, I think, is strongly referring to Psalm 2. There's, a, there's about three or four times in the Psalms where it's specifically, I mean, the, in the Old Testament where it says, it refers to the Messiah as the Son, but Psalm 2 is the main one. And so I think in their minds, as the people are looking for the Messiah, they've envisioned the Psalm 2 Messiah. 
Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So here you see two references to Psalm 2. He's a king and he's the son. And then there's a great declaration from Peter in Matthew 16. He says, thou art the Christ. Christ, that means anointed one. So that's from Psalm 2, the son of the living God. So all the people in this one, in the, uh, they were expecting and looking forward to the Messiah, Jesus coming. They all had this vision of what this, this king would look like. And guess what? Jesus wasn't who they expected. He was the unexpected king. And he was so unexpected, he was actually crucified, I believe, partly for claiming to be the king of Psalm 2. Matthew 26 says, The high priest said to you, I charge you under oath by living God. Tell us, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Are you that son from Psalm 2? And what did Jesus say? You have said so. And how does he respond? You have spoken blasphemy. The reason that's blasphemous is everyone knew that the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 2 wasn't a man. It was God. They knew that this son that they were to kiss, that they were to worship, that was God himself. So by Jesus claiming this promise, this Psalm 2 for himself, in the eyes of the chief priests and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, he was committing blasphemy. What did Pilate ask Jesus? Are you the king? Are you the king that's promised? Even on the cross, they say, hey, if you're the king, if you're that king of Psalm 2 that claims to be able to crush his enemies with a rod of iron, how about you come down from the cross, you who said you're the son of God? So here we see, they got it wrong. They missed it. They thought he was a, he was a king that he really wasn't. And I think we need to see, you know, as we were reading scripture, it is humbling. Say, God, help me to see the scripture appropriately. Now I want to take it a step further, because I think this is how I really want us to see the story in our own lives. How does this, how do we see Psalm 2 for us? Well, first I want to say, we are anointed. What's really cool is that when Jesus was anointed, um, when Jesus was baptized, Acts 10.38 calls that an anointing. When Jesus was the Holy Spirit, the dove came down on Jesus, Acts 10 says Christ was anointed at that moment. So too, and the Holy Spirit of Pentecost, when that, the Pentecost, when the, the flames of fire descended down on, on people at Pentecost, it was right on their foreheads, right above them, right where you're anointed. And so I think by extension, when we receive our salvation, when we receive the Holy Spirit, we too are anointed ones of God. Next we are definitely called sons of God throughout Scripture. John 1.12 says, For as many as believe on him, God has given the right, the power, to become sons of God. Romans 8 is very powerful. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to what? To sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that what? We are God's children. Now of children, that we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So this is an exalted position. I think... As Christians, you know, we're all talking, we all need to be humble, and humble is, is, is a great, that's one of the most important things we are as, as Christians. We have to also remember that the exalted position that God grants us as children, as heirs, co-heirs with Christ. I think the key, one thing that as I'm speaking, I want us to really internalize is that the humility comes from knowing you're underneath Christ's authority. As he reigns, as he's king, we are underneath him. So humility comes that we know that we are not ultimately our own master, that we are not ultimately able to make our own decisions and follow our own path. But we, as, as God's children, underneath the authority of God's word, that's where God wants us to be. And that's an exalted position, a position of honor, a position that we should not take lightly. So now that we see that I believe we can now, because 
we are sons. We've called, we're called sons because we're anointed. Because God, Christ is the head, we are the body because we are one in Christ. Because we walk as where he walks, where he says, I have suffered tribulation, so you shall suffer, suffer tribulation. As we follow Christ's steps, I think we can try to say, hey, let's see if we can see ourselves in Psalm 2. So let's just walk through it real quick here. So the first verse is, is questions, or questions that we can ask ourselves. Here's the psalmist saying, why are the nations conspiring and why are the peoples plotting in vain? And I think that this is um, the last two years, I think the last six years maybe, things have really changed. And I think a lot of Christians especially are asking themselves questions. God, why is this happening? What's going on with our world? What's going on in my own life? What's going on with my job, with society? I think we see just the ramp up of so many things that, that, we, that question us, that t- causes us to, to doubt and to, to wonder and to fear. And I think these are valid questions. And I think these are questions that we should be asking. And I think we should take some confidence knowing that this is expected, that we should not just expect everything to be easy and everything to be light, but we should ask these questions because these things that we are wondering, they will happen. So what's, what's next? What is the enemy doing? What is happening? What are the, the, these people that are rising up against us? What are they doing? It says, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. And I was thinking about that. What are these chains and what are these shackles? Does God literally have the world in shackles? No, no, we don't see that. But what does he do have? I think it's the word. I think this goes back to Genesis chapter, chapter one and two, is that, in, uh, through three, is that when, when Adam and Eve, when they were given this place of authority, this place of rule on this earth, it was with one caveat. You follow me. You put me first. You follow my, quote, my word. And what did man decide to do? He says, no, I want to be on my own. I don't want to have God's authority over me. And I think that's exactly what the world is saying today. We do not want God over us. We don't want the Bible over us. How many times are the Christians blamed for so many bad things in this world? And yes, we are not perfect. You know, Christians, we make so many mistakes. But it's, it's the word of God that the world hates. They want to throw off the shackles of God's word. They want to throw off the chains of anyone telling them what to do. It's your truth. It's my truth. Whatever I feel, that's my truth. I can do whatever I want because it's my life. I am king. There's no God's going to rule over me. There's no Bible from thousands of years ago that's going to tell me what to do. And I think it's exactly what we see happening. And I think by extension, if you decide, hey, I'm going to follow God's word, I'm going to make my life to follow what the scripture says, you're going to be called the same things. Who are you to tell me what to do? You're, you're backwards, you're, you're messed up. Who are you that's foolish to follow some, some word of God? And I think we will be lumped in and we will be persecuted as well. And so I think as these rulers crucified Christ for the words he spoke, so too the church, we should expect persecution if we speak the words of Christ as well. What is God's response? The one enthroned in heaven laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. There was a time when I was probably 16 or 17 that I was um, meeting some friends actually at my grandmother's house, and I was running late, and I pulled into the driveway, driveway and there were several cars already there, and I was walking into the garage, and I noticed that the door was open. I was like, that's kind of weird. And the light was turned off. I'm like, well, everyone's here. Why is the light turned off? And as I walked into the, into the room, all these chairs were turned over and there was a big, like, disheveled and a lot of things happening. And I immediately, like, froze, like, what's going on? And I, you know, me always dreaming about being a hero. <laughs> I ran out of the house and thought, surely there must be some robbery or something going on. And I, I have to save the day. And um, 
you know, a few years earlier, there'd actually been a, a murder on that street. And I was like going, all these thoughts going through my head. But then I, as I ran out, I realized I'd been really loud. So I hid underneath the car and I was looking, I was waiting and see if they're going to come for me. And I was like, what do I do? And this is like before cell phones. And so I was like, I got to get to the neighbor's house. And I know the neighbor on the other side. I know them better, so I should go over there. So finally, after a few minutes, I realized, okay, no one's coming. They must not have heard me or they're, maybe they're too, you know, they want to stay inside. So I'm like running across to the other side. I'm trying to hide behind bushes. And I finally get to the door. I knock on the door and they come to the door and I'm about to tell them we need to call the police. And then I hear it, you know, laughing behind me. And there are my friends that saw me run across from the front, you know, the front window and had come to stop me before I did anything. And, um, and here they are, you know, laughing because they, I didn't know what was going on. They played this, you know, this practical joke on me. And I think, does God play practical jokes on us? Of course not. That's not how God is. But why were they able to laugh? And why did I not laugh? I didn't know. They knew. I probably should have known, but uh, unfortunately I didn't. And, um, and that's how we should see this is God laughing. It's an in-control laugh, and it's a knowledge of the future laugh. He knows what's going to happen. He knows the end. We don't know. So when we're in the midst of it, we're in the midst of God. Why, why, why? It's not, I wasn't laughing. We're, it's hard for us to laugh, right? But I think this is a laughter of faith as well. We have to be able to say, you know what, God? It seems terrible. All these people are coming against me. They're all rising up against me. But can I have the faith to kind of chuckle and say, God, I know you got me. God, you're in control. God, you have this, the final say. And I think some people say, well, this sounds like a harsh God. Well, I think we need to realize, let's be honest, we have a harsh God that we serve. He's a holy God. This is the God who when people came up against Moses and they tried to usurp his authority, he swallowed them into the earth. This is a God when people came to offer a fire, uh, you know, Aaron's two sons, when they came and offered false fire, they offered their own sacrifice to God. He burnt them to a crisp. So I, I know we always talk about God's love, but we have to realize this also is a king. And he, a king who rules. A king that says, worship him and serve him with fear and trembling. And so I think we need to know that it's not just fun and games when it comes to Christ. He is a ruler and he is a king. And I think one thing I will say real quickly is that we have to see who the real enemy is. Who's the one that's getting crushed? Whose head? It's Satan's head. We see all these people, you know, coming against us and all the hatred and anger in our world. Just remember, those aren't our enemies. Even if they are yelling and screaming at Christians and being hate-filled, it's not the enemy. The enemy is Satan. Let's just remember that as we try to love this world and we see people, I have to remind myself this because it's so easy to get oh, so upset when we see how all this evil out there. Just remember who the true, true enemy is. Um, so we see God's promise. And this is just a great, great verse. I am Saul, my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. You are my son. Today I become your father. Uh, other versions say, uh, the one that was read today, today I've begotten you. And in the creed, I think it's three times I have begotten you. And I think it's kind of a word, real weird word, begotten. And I think sometimes I thought, does that mean he became something he wasn't? Like I thought God was eternal or Christ was eternal. Was it something he wasn't and he was? And I think what's interesting is you really dig into this. It's actually a title. Son of God is a title. It's a title of kingship. So when you say Jesus is the son of God, it says Jesus is the king. And this is a declaration I will proclaim a decree. So at some point, there was a decree where Jesus was declared 
to be the son of God. Where is that? Let's see where, where the scripture says this. Acts 2-7 is actually quoted three times in the New Testament. We'll just look at one here really quickly. Uh, here's Paul uh, preaching. He says in Acts 13:33, we proclaim to you the good news, and that's also the gospel. So that, what is the gospel? What is the gospel that we love, that we cherish, that we share? That God promised our fathers, he has to fill for us by raising up Jesus. So raising Jesus from the dead, that is the gospel. And then why, as it is written, you are my son, today I become your father. This is made a little bit more clear also in Romans 1:4, regarding his son, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh, and who the spirit of holiness was declared to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. So Jesus declared, God declared Jesus to be the son of God. How? By raising him from the dead. I mean, this is a very critical point. Why was Jesus crucified? We just looked at that. Jesus was crucified because he claimed to be the son. He claimed to be God's anointed one. And they said, no, you are not. So here we have it. Is he the son? Is he not the son? How will we know? How would we ever know who is right? Well, God said, I have a way of letting you know. I'm going to raise him from the dead. And by raising him from the dead, I'm going to justify and I'm going to vindicate him. Every word that he said, I'm going to declare to be true. Everything he did, I tell you it is true. And how do you do that? He did it with a historical event. There's many, if you want to just look up, how do I know Jesus rose from the dead? There's a lot of evidence for Jesus physically rising from the dead. Jesus did not do this in an esoteric way. He did this in a real, God, God did this in a real way with a historical event. He told the world, Jesus is my son. I declare it to all of you. I am raising him from the dead to prove to the world that he is who he said he was. And I think this is really neat because by declaring Jesus to be his son through a resurrection, that's also how we are declared to be sons. And this is very neat. Romans 6 says that we are buried with him by death. We are raised with him through the resurrection. Our old man is crucified with him. Our body of sin is destroyed. We are raised with him into new life. So as we put our faith in Jesus, we actually imitate him through his death and life. We don't have to die because Jesus died. But as Jesus died and we die with him, as Jesus is raised, so we are raised with him. And I think that is our salvation. That is how we are become sons and daughters of God. Because Christ went before us. It says he's the firstborn of the dead. He is the one that goes before us. And so as he is called son of God, so too we can be called sons and daughters of God because of this promise. But something I have, as I've been going through this chapter, I just think sometimes we just need encouragement. And one thing that I've done is I've just closed my eyes and just read this word into me. You are my son Today I become your father. I just think it's a powerful phrase. And if you ever, you know, this today or later this week, you just need some encouragement, just speak those words into your heart. Say, this is, I am God's son. God's declaring me to be his son. God's declaring me to be, declaring himself to be, to be my father. I just think that's something that we just need to internalize. We need to, as we read the scriptures, we should see ourselves in this and we should feel uh, the, the love God has for us. So what's next for the church? Ask me, and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, you'll dash them to pieces like pottery. And you may say, well, surely this isn't for the church. This is for later, and this is for when Christ returns. And like I said, I do believe that is true. But I also see, we need to see how does this apply to us today. I think this is a very interesting, is in a Revelation 2, when it quotes Psalm 2.9, it says, to the one who's victorious and does my will to the end, what does it say? I will give authority over the nations that one will rule them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like pottery. Very interesting. He actually changes, uh, break them with a rod of iron to rule them with a rod of iron. So he actually kind of softens the language. 
And I think this is very important for us to realize is that this is something he's speaking into the church today. And twice here it says authority. I will give authority. Authority I have received from my Father. Where else do we see that word authority from the Father come from? That's from the Great Commission. Is that Great Commission for the future? Or is that Great Commission for the present? I think the Great Commission is for us. It's for us today. That's how God left us. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ. So what? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always. Our King is with us. The authority that he has, he has given to us. And I think that's very important for us to understand is that we are the, the one that is, uh, that God has promised to give this authority to, that we should rule. But I think it's very important to understand how it is that this is supposed to happen. Um, Jesus was the unexpected warrior, I would say. And remember David? David also was an unexpected warrior. He was the, the last of the, his father's sons. He was the youngest when he came. He, his brother mocked at him. Why are you still here? Or shouldn't you be tending the sheep? When he came out to fight Goliath, he wasn't wearing, a, he didn't have a sword. He didn't have any armor on. He was mocked. He was, you know, people say, who are you? I come with me with sticks. But what did David have? As an unexpected warrior, he had the word of God in his heart. He was a psalmist who was constantly meditating and, and praying and seeking God's, God's favor. And as a result, God used him to, to work a mighty victory, to crush the head of one of, uh, of God's enemies. And so too, Christ as well. How did Christ conquer? Christ was a conqueror. I think we have to understand that. Jesus and Joshua are the same name. After Joshua crossed the Jordan River, he destroyed the nations that were in Palestine and Israel. Why did he do that? Because it said their, their iniquity had reached a fullness. They were sacrificing to, to demons. They were killing children. They were worshiping all sorts of idols. Their, their iniquity, their sin, had reached such a point that God had to bring judgment upon them. It's almost that they were, I would say, in some ways, demon worshipers. Jesus, who is also Joshua, what did he do? As soon as he was baptized in the Jordan, so after he crossed the Jordan, what did he immediately do? He went and confronted Satan. What did he do throughout his ministry? He was casting out demons. He was driving the demons out of the land. He was a warrior fighting fighting God's enemies. So we should see Christ, he's not the warrior we thought, but he's the warrior we need. And I think what's interesting is that the chief priests and the Pharisees, they thought the Romans were the enemies. They thought they were the ones that had to be destroyed. But Christ said, no, he loved the Romans. He loved the Jews. He loved the whole world. He said, no, they're not the enemy. The enemy is what's inside. The enemy is, is Satan. That's the one we have to destroy. That's the one we have to master. That's the one we need, that I need to, to destroy. So if we are commanded, if, we're, if God is calling us to be a king like he's a king, how are we supposed to do this? And I think verse 12 kind of shows us. Kiss his son, or he'll be angry with you, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we have to see the son. What is another word for the son? The word became flesh. So Jesus is the word. The son of God is also the word of God. The body, Christ says in, in John, that if you love me, if you're my disciples, you will follow, you will obey my word. So how do we kiss the Son? I think we kiss the word. We love the word. We submit ourselves to the word. If we want to be restored to how we were in the garden, where we are ruling and leading and, and following and, and making this world a better place, cultivating this world, bringing justice, bringing mercy, bringing love to this world, we do that with God as our head, with Christ as our king, submitting ourselves to him. How do we submit ourselves to the Word of God if we don't know the Word of God? We have to, we have to study it. 
I think sometimes as we read the word, if we just try to get through it, it can be kind of dry or dull. I would challenge you to take a passage, look up some commentaries, and just spend some time in a, in a smaller section and just find the depths and the wisdom that's found there and say, God, apply this to my life. How do I see this in my life? How can I be a king and rule for you with you as my head? I heard recently that someone said the Christians are always better on the periphery. And I, I agree with that. I think Christians make a lot of mistakes. But just because we made mistakes, I don't think it means that we need to just stay there. I think we should say, God, you've called us to a greater purpose. Ephesians, Ephesians 3 says, we are seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. The heavenly places of Christ, that's where Christ is ruling. And so Paul says, we are seated with him there. We have to see ourselves as, as more than just you know, the Bible in, in, our, in this church. This church is the holy mountain of God. This should be the beacon, the light to this world. And I think we should challenge ourselves. God, how do you want me to be in my job? How do you want me to impact my community? How do you want me to share my faith and to believe that God's word, it's not just for us, it's for the world. It's not just true for us and true in our life and not just our truth. The Bible is not my truth. The Bible is God's truth. And God made the world. And Christ conquered the world. And Christ conquered death. And we have to believe that. I think Christians, we need to believe that what we have and hold on to is what the world needs. And yes, we may get it wrong, we may make mistakes, but that's the, the humbling, the repentance that we still need. And I think we just need to say, God, please use me, please use me to make this world to follow you. Our goal as Christians, that all the world should bow to Jesus. And you know, the world is not doing well right now. It really isn't. And I think a lot of us think, okay, Christ is coming soon. <laughs> Guess what, guys? We don't know. We don't know. He may come tomorrow, but he may not. It may be another thousand years. It really may. So in the meantime, what has God called us to do? To rule in his name, to make disciples of the nations. Maybe God has another act for America. Maybe God has another act for Massachusetts. There was a time when most people did worship God here in Massachusetts. Has anyone been to Plymouth? They've said their Plymouth was set up on the basis of following God. The, the principles of scripture, they submitted themselves to that. I'd love to see that again. You know, right now, the church probably isn't ready, but it starts here in our hearts. And I think the way we have to see is that if I submit myself to God's word, if I follow him, then maybe my family will do that. And my family does that, maybe my church will do that. And if my church does that, maybe my community will do that. And if my community does that, maybe my state, maybe my nation, maybe the world. And I think that's how we just have to see it. I think too, we need to see this also on a personal level, is that God, I feel like there's so much going on. I feel beat down, run down. I feel attacked. I think all of us feel attacked and feel beat down and run down. What's very interesting about um, Psalm 2 is it's also quoted in Acts 4. Acts 4 says, um, referring to the beginning of the psalm, when the nations are conspiring and when they're raging, when they're plotting together, it actually quotes that in reference to Jesus being uh, before Pilate, Jesus' trial and crucifixion. So here, we see Psalm 2 directly related to Jesus being tortured and crucified for all of us. And I think the thing that is encouraging about that is that that was the worst thing that can ever, ever happen. The Son of God being mocked, crucified, beaten, who is innocent, who only had done good. The greatest travesty, the greatest act of injustice, what did that produce? The greatest glory that could ever be on this earth, the glory of Christ being exalted 
and being raised as king, and then the glory of all of us being able to become sons and daughters of God. So we see the greatest travesty creating, and for us, the greatest glory. So what travesty is in your life? Do you think maybe it's, if it's just a little travesty, if it's a little fight, do you think that's going to produce a great glory? Well, maybe. But maybe you need a bigger battle, a bigger travesty, a larger attack against you for God to work a greater glory. I don't know. I think we have to, to, to at least have the faith to believe that even when things are so bad, that is when God can create an even greater good. So let's see this last summary of what this says. The last summary of Psalm 2. We will be attacked, but not defeated, because God is in control. Since we are chosen as his sons and daughters, we are to rule with his authority, but only in submission to his word. So one day, and whether this is a thousand years or never when Christ returns, but one day, all the world will serve the true king, Jesus Christ our Lord. If anyone here wants to know that, isn't, doesn't feel like they're a son or daughter, wants to become a son or daughter by being raised from the dead with Christ, there'll be people on either side to, to pray with you. If you're a Christian and you just haven't found that passion for God's word, talk to someone here. There's a lot of great resources that help you understand it. If you don't understand what you're reading, there's great resources that can just open your eyes to the beauty of God's word. It's rich, it's powerful. It can change our lives, it can change our world, and hopefully it can change us, change our families. So I just thank you for this opportunity today, and I just hope you guys can be excited about Psalm 2. Thank you.